So my guest today is Carissa Veliz. Carissa is a research fellow at the Uhiro Center for Practical Ethics and the Wellcome Center for Ethics and Humanities at the University of Oxford. She works on digital ethics, practical ethics more generally, political philosophy and public policy. She is also the director of the research program on data, privacy and the individual at the IE Center for the Governance of Change in Madrid. So welcome to the show, Carissa. Thanks for the invitation, John. It's great to talk to you. So we're going to talk today about a topic that I think is of you know, fundamental practical importance to the world in which we live today, which is namely, how should we manage and regulate online speech communities? I don't suppose that there's really anyone listening to this podcast who hasn't been struck by the problems we are having with maintaining vibrant online speech communities in the present day. From harassment and trolling to fake news and extremism, it's safe to say that things are currently less than ideal when it comes to expressing and sharing opinions online. Now, you've written a paper about this topic recently called Online Masquerade, Redesigning the Internet for Free Speech Through the Use of Pseudonyms. And in this paper, you make an interesting proposal, which, to use the metaphor you adopt in the paper, suggests that we should regulate online speech environments so that they become something like a masquerade ball. So let's dive in and see how you develop the argument for that view. Now, I mentioned in that intro there that the current situation is less than ideal when it comes to the regulation of online speech. Maybe I could just start by asking you to highlight the problems with the online speech environment as you currently see them. Yes, so I think you mentioned some of the biggest problems regarding speech online. The first one is harassment. It seems to me that valuable speech is being silenced online and it's being drowned by very hateful speech. It is even worse for minorities and other vulnerable populations. Women, for example, seem to be the victims of harassment more often than men. And it worries me that it's discouraging people from participating in politics, from expressing opinions in academia, and that we are just missing out on some opinions that we might benefit from. A second problem that you also mentioned, I think, is extremism. Nowadays, it is easy to get away with hate speech online. I was reading an article just a few days ago um, that came out in Motherboard that talks about why Twitter does not treat white supremacists like ISIS. While the platform has been quite successful in pretty much obliterating speech from ISIS, white supremacists are thriving. And the reason for the different treatment, it seems, is that the speech of white supremacists is too close to that of prominent Republican politicians who they do not want to censor. So I think that's a very good example that makes salient the, the trickiness of moderating content online. And then the third big problem with speech online is fake news. Unreliable sources spreading false information online, many times with very malicious purposes that can even harm democracy. I mean, to some extent, these problems with speech are features of how we manage and regulate speech communities offline as well. There, there are issues with extremism and harassment. But is the issue when it comes to the online speech environment something to do with the costs and risks associated with speech? Uh, is it the problem that online speech is too costly or risky for some people and not costly or risky enough for others? Yes, that's part of the problem. One thing to note is that in the past, we used anonymity and pseudonymity much more than we use it today. In fact, most writing before the Renaissance was published anonymously or pseudonymously. So that's something that we should look at and maybe learn from. 
from the offline world. And then in the online world, it seems that depending on who you are, there is a different cost to speech. And that speech that can be incredibly destructive to society is not costly at all for the people who, who use it. And speech that is very valuable to society can be very costly to some people to the point of destroying their lives. Yeah, so as you say, you know, people from minority backgrounds in particular, let's say, who are, who are expressing minority views can find themselves exposed and subject to real-world physical abuse and harm as a result of things that they say online, whereas other people have platforms for kind of spewing hatred and they suffer no repercussions. And it's a question of how we manage those those different costs and risks. Now, you mentioned this idea of anonymity and pseudonymity and um, how people are identifiable. That is a key theme in your paper, that there's a tension between anonymity and, and identifiability uh, that we need to address when it comes to managing online speech. So maybe you could explain why that is so important to the question of online speech. Well, it seems that we both want the advantages of anonymity and of identifiability. But if we use either of those, uh, we end up with a lot of disadvantages that, that we don't want. In a nutshell, anonymity serves to advance certain goals in society, such as free speech, because it protects the identity of people who would otherwise be in danger if they spoke. But this invisibility cloak can be abused, and so it is dangerous. People can use that protection to attack others, to engage in misbehavior, of many kinds. Um, so champions of anonymity emphasize its value in advancing public debate, in protecting political dissension and furthering due process, while critics emphasize the need for accountability and the interest of the public in knowing the identity of speakers. And the problem, the problem is that the values on both sides of the debate seem equally important and weighty. We want free and open debate and public dissension and due process, but we also want accountability and verifiability. And it seems that we can't get everything if we choose either anonymity or identifiability. Maybe we could try and kind of dive deeper into these different concepts and how they um, should be thought about in, in, in this context. So this idea of anonymity, you talk about it in your paper, that how we define or understand what anonymity is. So you know, what is it that makes somebody anonymous when they're speaking? Someone is anonymous when others have not identified her through traits that only attach to that person. Each person's identity is constituted by interrelated traits, something like a network of dots in which every dot is a piece of information. Some traits are quite specific to each person. For example, your name and address. There's only one person with that name and address. Other traits are not that specific to identify someone as a unique person. For example, your gender. But knowing enough non-specific traits can lead to knowledge about a spe specific traits. One of the stories that is used the most in the literature on anonymity is one told by William Thackeray in one of his roundabout papers called On Being Found Out. And he tells the story of a priest who mentions at a dinner party that the first confession he ever received was from a murderer. A few minutes later, a person joins the group and greets the priest quite affectionately and introduces himself to the other guests as the priest's first penitent. 
and in so doing, of course, reveals him, himself as a murderer without wanting to. And that is a kind of joining of the dots that can reveal identity. So historically, anonymity has two homes. One is writing. It was the process of writing that first facilitated anonymity on a large scale. In prehistory, speech was intimately related to the speaker's identity because you had to use your voice and body to say something. But as soon as you can write a note that you don't have to sign and leave it somewhere, anonymity becomes possible. And the second natural home of anonymity is the metropolis. It is with the advent of big cities that people were able for the first time to be surrounded by others and still retain their anonymity in the crowd. In a village, everybody knows who you are. But in the city, nobody knows who you are, nobody cares. You can blend in and enjoy a kind of peopled solitude, as Baudelaire used to put it. On the other hand, identifiability is just the opposite of anonymity. It is being singled out as the person you are through traits that only attach to you. Yeah, I mean, I find like some of the examples of anonymous authorship in the past, you know, fascinating and how that was the norm. And you mention a number of famous works of philosophy were first anonymous works, like John Locke's treatises on government were originally anonymous and weren't linked to a particular author and how that was the, the norm at the time. And actually thinking about it in that historical context, I think does help us to understand the benefits of anonymity from a speech perspective. And, you know, we touched upon this already, but th there's a big advantage to anonymity when you're trying to speak your mind, particularly in a censorious or conservative environment, let's say, that it protects you from certain kinds of harm. Uh, what are the other kinds of advantages to anonymity? Um, yeah, just just going back to, to that point about philosophers, it makes you think how if we hadn't had that possibility of anonymity and pseudonymity, maybe we would have missed out on, on works that completely changed the world. So as you mentioned, John Locke is one example. He was a very public persona, and for him, publishing could have a very high cost. And he published treatises that are some of the fundamental pillars of today's political philosophy and even governmental thinking. Another example is Hamilton, Madison and Jay's The Federalist Papers. A third example is Marx and Engels' Communist Manifesto and also Kierkegaard's work. And one, one example that I recently read is today from Contemporary Times is The Secret Barrister. And it's a book about a barrister in the UK and it explains the system of justice and the criminal system, and it points out some of its shortcomings. And that is a book that is incredibly helpful for citizens to learn about what's going wrong in that system and how it works, and that it couldn't be possible if that person had to unveil his identity and, and, and risk his job. Yeah, I've actually just been reading that book as well. It's a, it's a really good book for... You know, ex explaining the shortcomings in the criminal justice system in in the UK, and uh, I, I think that also that book, if anyone has come across it, also highlights uh, another advantage of anonymity. It's not just protecting the individual from harmful repercussions of what they're saying, but it also kind of frees them to be unburdened by their identities. Could you talk a bit about that and how that's an important feature of anonymity as well? Yes. So Kierkegaard, for example, believed that. The writing process itself is influenced by the thought of identifiability. 
So according to him, the writing will be better if the author is not too burdened by his own identity and fears about his reputation. And I think this is very relevant for philosophy. I think philosophers are prone to being afraid of, of saying contradictory things. And sometimes philosophy is about testing out ideas. So sometimes we're not that sure about what we think. And one way to figure out what we think is to write it down. And maybe what you end up with is something that doesn't quite match your previous book or things that you have said in the media before. And philosophers, I think, are very reticent to making that kind of change. There, there are some exceptions of people who, who have changed their minds many times and, and have acknowledged it publicly, but it's the exception rather than the rule. And so it seems that this argument does give Kierkegaard some credibility in thinking that maybe philosophy would be better off if we didn't have to attach our identity to every single thing we write. Yeah, but I think it's it's true for philosophers, but I think it's true for everyone as well. And you know, even as you're speaking there, I'm reminded of the fact that people are now being you know, punished for tweets that they sent out 10 years ago or speech acts that are a long time in their past. And there seems to be a particular problem with online speech that we can never escape our past identities. And maybe that's a, another advantage to anonymity is that it allows us to escape from the past identity. Yes, another very, very good book that I read recently is Delete. It's a, it's a book about how, for most of history, we have relied on forgetting for our social relationships, but also for our public persona. And today the internet is imposing up, upon us perfect memory. And as you say, it means that we cannot escape our identity. We cannot escape the teenagers that we were and how we probably thought about more radical things and uh, uh, as grown-ups. And it makes you, it solidifies identity as if it was a thing that is given and completed. And it, as if everything you said had to be a very well thought of and um, something that is got, not going to change in the future. Yeah, maybe another couple of things about the value of anonymity and online speech. Um, you mentioned this about the protection of whistleblowers. That's a key kind of value for society. And also blind peer review is, is something that speaks to the value of anonymity. Yes, so as another advantage of anonymity is that it allows for a work to be evaluated on its own merits without interfering judgments about the identity of the author. So Charlotte Bronte and George Eliot are two examples among many other women of people who did not want their gender to be known because they were afraid of being judged, misjudged, and, and their works being judged only as women's works rather than just good literature. And academic double-blind peer review constitutes a case in point. The idea is that manuscripts are not accepted or rejected on the basis of the author's name, but on the basis of the work's merit. And that contributes to fairness in the pursuit of rigor and truth. It, it is designed to protect both authors and reviewers for holding a grudge against each other. And it allows freedom for authors to write possibly unpleasant or bold views and for reviewers to criticize articles and recommend rejection when appropriate. I wonder, we've outlined some of the advantages of, of anonymity here. Uh, the bottom line, though, is that it, anonymity is an advantage because it effectively encourages a kind of million free speech environment that we get to be presented with all arguments and all ideas 
and we aren't censored or we don't feel ourselves to need to censor ourselves from a diversity of thought. Is that is that the basic gist of the position you're outlining in the paper? Yes, that's exactly right. It protects people from negative consequences and thereby encourages speech. Okay, but now let's consider the, the other side of this. I mean, against anonymity in, in a bit more detail. Uh, there's a famous philosophical thought experiment from you know, Plato's Republic, uh, the Ring of Gyges. Um, maybe you could outline that thought experiment and how you think it translates into anonymous speech online. Yes, it's very interesting to think about Plato because it one thing that it signals is that this problem is very, very old. It doesn't come out of the internet. Um, but the internet changes it in interesting ways. So in book two of the Republic, Glaucon argues that if people could have access to a magical artifact, which is called the Ring of Gyges, that could make them invisible to others, no one would be so virtuous as to resist the temptation of performing bad acts such as theft and murder. So Gyges was a king who got to be king by murder by finding this ring in the mountains and using invisibility to seduce the queen and kill the previous king. The interesting thing is that today, that problem remains but is aggravated by technology. On the internet, the ring of gauges is not a thought experiment anymore. In the virtual world, anonymity can serve as an invisibility ring available to anyone. To the extent that more of our lives are spent online, anonymity is becoming more of a problem and it lies behind some of the most alarming trends online. It can encourage irresponsible writing, sometimes impulsive, offensive, or even violent, as well as inaccurate, deceptive, and false. And it can also help the dissemination of extremisms, including terrorism. So for example, and Anders Breivik, who murdered 77 people in Norway in 2011, wrote a manifesto online under a pseudonym. Anonymity can also facilitate other illegal activities online, like publishing and consuming child pornography, as well as other activities that have less to do with speech and more like buying drugs online and so forth. But more commonly, anonymity is involved in online harassment. There are at least two factors that play very important roles and that are different from offline, the offline world. One is the physical distance involved in virtual interactions, in which people cannot look into each other's eyes. That distance creates a kind of barrier of empathy. And the second one is being completely anonymous, which you can't do online, at least if you are in person. And one of the things that is particularly disturbing for people who are harassed online, they report that is very concerning that you don't know who is the source of the threat. So there is no way of telling whether it is a neighbor who might physic have physical access to you and, and be a real threat, or maybe a teenager who's thousands of kilometers away and is really just playing a joke and doesn't uh, mean any harm. The problem here is, to allude to something I said earlier, is that it kind of Anonymity online reduces the costs and the repercussions of harmful speech and just makes it maybe more easy or attractive to engage in impulsive or harmful speech acts. And this is one reason why people call for identifiability, because identifiability introduces some element of, of accountability into the process and allows us to hold 
those who engage in harmful speech to account. And that seems to be, I think, a powerful rationale for identifiability. Now, in your paper, you seem a little bit skeptical of the power of identifiability to really constrain harassment online. Maybe you could explain why you are skeptical of that. Yeah, so unfortunately, identifiability doesn't seem to be as effective as one might imagine in curtailing harmful speech online. And in a way, it's not surprising, given what we know about Twitter. If you look at some of the most horrifying posts online, many times they come from politicians and from people who don't seem to have any kind of qualm about uh, unveiling their identity. So th there are a couple of theories why that might be so, and, and it's very unclear. But some people think that trolling is associated with certain characteristics of personality like sadism, psychopathy, Machiavellism, and narcissism. There's a study that shows this. And given that psychopathic indiv individuals have deficiencies detecting and responding to threats, one possibility is that trolls don't react positively to threats of being held accountable through identifiability because they're psychopathic. I'm not sure whether this is true. I think the scientific literature on trolling is still not sufficiently developed um, for us to conclude with any certainty that that's the case. And at the same time, researchers have found that ordinary people can be influenced to engage in trolling by factors such as negative moods and the context of a discussion. The second reason why identifiability may not be the solution to online abuse is that in the context of highly controversial online debates, it seems that identifiability increases people's credibility and online popularity, which can encourage trolls to continue behaving nastily. A study that looked at more than 500,000 comments from around 1,600 online petitions on a German platform found that non-anonymous individuals were more aggressive than anonymous ones, and they were more popular, so people tend to follow them more and respond more to their comments. So. It's quite the contrary. It seems that sometimes, or at least in some cases, identifiability can encourage destructive speech. Yeah, I mean, I have to say that I find that kind of result a little bit terrifying insofar as it, it tells us something disturbing about the nature of the online speech environment. And it suggests that maybe the normal incentives to self-regulation aren't applying. Um, I mean, is does that really seem to be the case? It seems to be the case. I, because the literature isn't, isn't very vast and we're so new at this online world, I think it's still, the, the jury's still out, but it seems to be the case and it is absolutely terrifying. But if you have spent enough time on social media, you will have noticed that people who you know and are perfectly nice people in person seem to be willing to post things that sound a lot nastier um, than what they would say in person. Yeah, I mean, that, that brings me to another point that I think is probably worth exploring at this juncture before we kind of go into your solution or answer to this this problem, which is that we've been focusing here on the ideas of anonymity and identifiability and how being anonymous creates maybe incentives to harmful speech. One thing that you don't talk about in your paper, but seems like it should be part of this conversation is the role that the platforms through which speech is mediated and shared online, 
the role that they play in exacerbating this problem. So, you know, the algorithmic mediation of speech, how online platforms either accentuate or reward certain kinds of speech. Maybe they tend to reward emotionally hot speech, to use that language, stuff that prompts people to anger. That gets rewarded and reinforced online, whereas more reasonable and sensible views don't prevail as much. Um, and also, I guess, how online platforms enable people who engage in harmful speech to find like-minded people in a way that wasn't the case in the past. Do you think those those are important issues and are they things that just have to be addressed separately or are they tied into this discussion about anonymity and identifiability? Definitely. I think those are very important points. Someone who has written about this is David Auerbach and he has some interesting articles suggesting ways in which Twitter could change in, in its design to favor more to favor speech that is less, that, that doesn't incite violence and doesn't incite um, hate speech. I think you're right that some of the design of the platforms, starting from tweets being very short, is that it is just more exciting and it, and it invites more interaction to say things that are very controversial than to say things that are very sensible. Sensible things are not as exciting and a bit boring sometimes and it is easier to ignore them yeah no i mean i think this is this is a, a big problem so i mean part of the perspective i would like to share here is that addressing the issues around anonymity and identifiability i think will go some way towards rectifying the online speech environment but also we we probably need to think about the way in which these platforms are designed and you know, having the kind of low friction, instant reaction oriented communication online, I think is a problem. And we, we also need to consider ways in which we can design speech platforms that re reward a more reflective or thoughtful approach. I, I don't know exactly how to do that. I've seen some proposals in the past, particularly in the early days of the the internet, there were people kind of promoting online debate platforms that would enable much more reasoned dialogue. But I haven't seen those really take off in the same way as a platform like Twitter has taken off. Um, Definitely. I think you're right. I think the problem of free speech online is very complex. And there isn't going to be one thing that it just acts as a panacea and fixes everything. We need to think a lot about a lot of things. And the design of tech is one of the most important things. I also don't know the, the details, wouldn't be able to specify the details of how it should be. But one thing that I suspect is that we need more avenues for public conversation. So many times when somebody invites you to say something on Twitter, you feel like you're trapped because if you don't answer, it's kind of ending a conversation that is worth having and that you want to engage in. But if you answer, if the question is framed in a particular way or, you know, it's like a, a bait that, you know, you're just going to get entangled in a nasty argument that is not the kind of conversation that um, should be taking place online. Yeah, I mean, I have a confession to make for, to people who try to engage with me online. It's just that my general default policy is not to respond to tweets that people send me or questions that people ask me because I worry that I'll just get into a a long rambling debate where I, I don't feel like I, I can express myself effectively. I tend to prefer the more solitary long-form 
format of my blog than to, to engage with people on Twitter. Uh, and that's p- part of the reason why is because I, I, I worry about the ramifications of it for how I, my ideas are expressed and received. Uh, so there's just one point I wanted to mention before we move on to discuss how to think about solving this problem, which has to do with the value of identifiability. We're, we're focusing here to some extent on the idea of accountability being valuable in order to address harmful speech, that it imposes a cost on harmful speech because people might be held to account for what they say. There is also another advantage to identifiability, which might have to do with trustworthiness and how ideas are respected. If you are willing to stand over them with your own name and your own reputation, that might make them more likely to be believed or trusted. That is true, but I think that is more theoretical than practical. So unfortunately, we have very good examples in the present and near past of people who have said false things knowing that they were false and whose reputation doesn't seem to be tarnished at all. And it isn't clear how this can happen and to that and to the extent that it's happening, but it is a fact that it's happening. And so it shows that the link between identifiability and trustworthiness isn't as close as we thought. And I think it's something that is not unsurmountable if we wanted to implement pseudonyms. So for one of the examples I mentioned in my paper is if we allowed academics to publish online with a pseudonym, we could implement certain measures to have some degree of accountability and verifiability. So first, for example, an editor could verify whether that person has formal training in whatever she's writing about. So if she's an economist, the editor can vouch that she has a PhD in economy. And secondly, there can also be accountability for the future of her career. So when she asks for a job, there can be people who get access to the link between names and pseudonyms and can assess that work and can have strong repercussions in her career in a way that um, her speech is not completely without risk, but it's contained to a particular discipline and to particular parties that is not completely public. Yeah, no, I think that's an important point. We'll probably come back to that a little bit. And uh, yeah, I accept what you're saying that just because you are identifiable doesn't mean that you might are more inclined to speak the truth. And in fact, people can be rewarded for owning up to or speaking untruths as the most prominent example on, online would, of course, be somebody like Donald Trump. M- moving on though, to you know how, how to resolve the, these problems with anonymity and identifiability. I mean, one thing that you point out in your paper is that we have to realize that anonymity and identifiability are not ends in themselves. They are means to an end. And that thinking about the ends that they serve kind of reframes and allows us to reconceptualize this debate. Maybe you could talk about that important idea a bit more. Yeah, so that was kind of how my train of thought, um, what my train of thought was when writing this paper. I was trying to figure out what we look for in anonymity. And it seems to me that we want anonymity because we want to protect agents from repercussions that they do not deserve. And I, thinking about what are the alternatives, how we could get to the same objectives without anonymity, I thought about three. 
The first is socialization, the second is laws, and the third is moderation. So regarding the first, it is possible, at least in theory, to socialize people in a way that we build an open and free society in which people are interested in hearing opinions different from their own, in which dissenters are not punished in any way for falling outside of the mainstream. And even though this is logically and metaphysically a possibility, it sounds too utopic to be feasible. It would require cultural changes that cannot be brought about only through institutional policies, and it may even turn out that it's not psychologically possible for human beings as a species to embrace differences across the board. So it seems that that it has some advantages. And of course, some societies are more open than others. And nearing that ideal can make a big difference. But even in the most advanced societies, dissenters cannot be guaranteed to escape all social repercussions. The second tool that we could use to achieve an open and free society and to protect agents from negative repercussions of their speech are legal measures. And again, there are crucial complements in protecting speakers from bad consequences, and we should have them. But even the best laws cannot fully protect speakers. Laws can ban discrimination, for example. But proving that someone was denied a job because of discrimination is extremely hard. Employers can always appeal to excuses to justify their decision. And a second limit of laws is that they are limited and we want them to be limited. We don't want to over-regulate behavior. So, for example, laws can ban overt harassment, but they cannot ensure that people will not be shunned by others for their views. As citizens, we do not have a legal duty to be friends with anyone. But social rejection can be as damaging to somebody's well-being as physical harassment. So again, this is a tool that is helpful, but limited. And the third way that we can try to protect speakers is through moderation. And moderation can go a long way towards encouraging and maintaining constructive and high-quality interactions online. But it is very limited in that it can only protect people in a certain platform. So if Twitter does a great job at moderating, it can protect speakers from getting insulted and harassed in its own platform, but it can do nothing to protect those speakers from getting hateful messages or emails or from having somebody show up at their doorstep. Yeah, and I think also the the issue with moderation that people worry about is that the moderator becomes a censor and there are questions about... How do they decide? I mean, you alluded to this example earlier on of, of Twitter saying that they can stamp out ISIS, but they aren't going to stamp out um, white supremacy because they perceive that to be more legitimate because of its association with the Republican Party in the US. Exactly. And in my paper, I mentioned how when moderation works at its best, it prevents harm. So speakers are, are protected from harm. But I think. I, it was a mistake to not mention how moderators themselves get harmed. There are a lot of articles online about what a really tough job it is to be a moderator and how it is excruciating to be exposed to so much hateful speech and violent images and so on. So it's, it's kind of offloading that burden on a minority of people. 
Yeah, no, that's a good point as well. The, the kind of neglected costs on the moderator themselves is, is a, an issue and something that's, that's worth worth considering. In terms of addressing the problem, so let's just get to the big idea in your paper, which is that the, the solution to this is to avoid a false dichotomy of thinking that we have to choose between anonymous speech online and identifiable speech online. And there's actually a third way between the two, which is pseudonymity. It's come up a couple of times in our conversation already. But what, could you explain what pseudonymity is and how it might provide a way out of this quagmire that we're in? Yes. Pseudonymity is derived from the Greek. It means false name. And it involves the identification of an author through a tag that does not correspond to her real name. Pseudonymity does not amount to full identifiability because while a pseudonym allows the identification of an author as one and the same author across time and publications, possibly in one or more platforms, it does not allow others to link the author's pseudonym to her real name or identity. So pseudonymity is a subtype of anonymity because it can block the link between authorship and identity. But it's not full anonymity. The veil of invisibility is thinner because the author who publishes under a single pseudonym has an identifiable persona that can be stable and held accountable for her actions. When pseudonyms are used more than once, pseudonymity is a means for achieving a degree of anonymity that is short of full anonymity. There is a really good article by Lloyd Humberstone on pseudonymity, and he defends a fictionalist account of pseudonymity. So he argues that having a pseudonym is not really like having a nickname, but it's more like having an alternative identity, a fictional character or an alter ego, a persona, in a way that nicknames are not that. So for example, we can say that Lewis Carroll was Charles Dodson, but we could not say that Ike was Dwight Eisenhower. In the latter case, it would be more natural to say that Eisenhower was called Ike. In contrast, the author of, the, of Alice in Wonderland was not called Lewis Carroll by those around him, by, by his friends or family. And whenever strangers made that mistake, he was upset by it and corrected them. So pseudonymity differs from the anonymity that strangers enjoy in a crowded street in that it hides true identity through acting like a mask that becomes the identifier of an alter ego. So that is why I call my paper Online Masquerade, because it's not like a, an anonymous crowd in which you can see people, but you can't identify them. It's more like you can see the masks, but you cannot see the identity behind the mask. Yeah, I mean, I was struck as well by some of the earlier examples that you gave of anonymity, like George Eliot and The Secret Barrister. Those are actually pseudonyms. In effect, these are people occupying maybe alter egos or alternative identities. I I don't know if that's really true in the case of of George Eliot. I don't know the history that well, but it seems to be true in the the case of The Secret Barrister. It's, It's kind of a an alter ego through which this person writes. Yes, and that matters because it enables a conversation between readers and authors. So if you want to write to the secret barrister, you know how to identify that person. And he may write other things in the media, for example, and and it enables a a dialogue. And also it enables criticism. So the other thing as well, when it comes to pseudonymity, just when we're thinking about this in terms of resolving the, the dilemma or the problems of online speech, this point that you make in the paper is that we need to think about the term in ter- uh, about speech in terms of the costs associated with it and so this is my simplistic gloss on it but 
if we're perfectly anonymous when we speak, then speech is essentially low cost or zero cost. And this is the ring of Gaiji's problem is that you don't suffer any consequences of your speech. If speech is identifiable, if it's linked to you in very definite and clear and tangible ways, then it's potentially at least very high cost. Whereas with pseudonymity, we get to maybe control the costs associated with speech a bit more. Is that the core idea in the paper? Yes, that's exactly right. So at the moment, we seem to, the debate seems to assume that we have to choose between anonymity or identifiability. And if we choose anonymity, we get all the advantages, but all the disadvantages and the same if we choose identifiability. But there's this kind of midway of pseudonymity. And one of the problems now is that all different kinds of speech and coming from every person has the same kind of cost. If we choose anonymity, it is absolutely no cost. If we choose identifiability, it is potentially very high cost. And what we want really is to encourage same kinds of speech, some kinds of speech, and make sure that those are very low cost and discourage some kinds of speech and make sure that they ha- they are high cost. In other words, we do not want it to be equally costly to say anything at all. Some assertions in some contexts should be more costly than others, but neither full anonymity nor identifiability allow for that nuance. Yeah, and I mean, if we finesse our understanding of pseudonymity even a bit more, you talk about th- there being three main forms or kinds of pseudonymity in your paper. Maybe you could outline what those three forms are. So these categories come from Fitzman and Hansen. They suggest that public pseudonyms are the weakest in anonymity, and they are those for which the link between a persona and the person's identity may be publicly known. For example, if there is a public directory linking pseudonyms with real names. I don't consider these real pseudonyms because it's more like nicknames. It's not like having an alter ego. The other two are the, the ones that interest me the most. Ones are non-public pseudonyms, and these are those that can be linked to a person's identity by certain privileged parties, but not by the public at large. So, for example, when The Economist publishes an article on something, we don't know who the author is, but the editor does know, because the editor is the privileged party. And the third kind of pseudonym is unlinked pseudonyms. These are the strongest in anonymity, and they are the ones that are only known by the holder of the persona, those for which the link is not meant to be found out by anyone else. And I think that different forums and different platforms should use different kinds of anonymity. So for example, if we want to really encourage a kind of speech that is very sensitive, such that people are not willing to engage in it unless they feel protected, and in a context in which the leeway for abuse is quite narrow, then we should use unlinked pseudonyms, those that are only known by, by the person themselves. And one example is, for example, if, if we want to encourage people to participate in surveys of public health, this is something that is very important for society. It's very sensitive, such that if we don't protect people, they will not want to participate and the leeway for abuse is quite low. In other contexts in which speech can be good but can also be bad, such as political debates that can become quite nasty, 
they are good for society, but only if they're well moderated and and constructive. And the leeway for abuse is is much broader. Then we should use non-public pseudonyms. So we should have some kind of privileged party who could access the identity of that person if something goes wrong. For example, if the person engages in something illegal, like pronouncing death threats. So we have to imagine here then that there is some trusted third party that manages pseudonyms and can, particularly in the case of non-public pseudonyms, so that there's somebody who can verify or link pseudonyms to an actual person if that is deemed to be necessary in order to impose some kind of cost associated with speech. Now, who do you imagine would be performing this third party function? That is a very difficult question. In some cases, it's going to be easier. So it's easy to imagine a journal, an academic journal, and editors who are that privileged party. And the same goes for books, in which um, the editors of publishing houses are the ones who know the identity of the author, as in the case of Elena Ferrante. It's much harder to think about what should be the case online with platforms like Twitter and Facebook and so on. One option is to have those platforms themselves be the privileged parties that have access to identities. And this could be imposed by law. So you could ask of any company that deals with personal data that they offer the possibility of pseudonyms. But one of the things that I worry about is first, how trustworthy they might be. And a company like Facebook has showed that it's not very trustworthy when it comes to privacy. And another concern is how do we protect people who are living in countries with very repressive regimes? If they use a company that is in that country, it seems that that is not enough of a protection to really encourage free speech. So one of the things I propose, and it's extremely tentative, I don't know if this is going to work, but it's something that I think it's worth thinking about, is to have something like an international organization. And in my paper, I called it Suda. And this organization would be in charge of distributing pseudonyms for online activities. They would act as fiduciaries of the link between real names and pseudonyms. So there would be a strong duty of confidentiality. So suppose that netizens were allowed only two or maybe three pseudonyms in their lifetime, and they could be used as they, as they pleased. So people could use them at the same time in different platforms or use one for one platform and another for another or use one for a few years and then the second one for other years. And only pseudonyms approved by Sudo would be able to participate in online platforms like Facebook, Twitter, or YouTube, and to open websites of their own. Authenticity could be verified through technologies such as zero-knowledge proof or blockchain. And if there were a serious crime committed, such as a death threat, Sudo could reveal the identity of the criminal to the police. If a pseudonym was abused by using hate speech, the bearer might lose the privilege of using that pseudonym in the future, perhaps after one warning or immediately if the infraction were grave enough. It's something like, like we lose points in our driver's license, maybe something like that. And if someone were to lose all of her pseudonyms, then she would be forced to either not participate on online debates or participate using her real name. Yeah, I mean, so we're imagining an organization then that could potentially have a lot of power over the online speech environment. And I guess questions are going to be asked about the regulation and management of that organization. And I appreciate that 
what you say in the paper is tentative and just a suggestion as opposed to a worked out policy proposal. If we have in mind digital platforms like Facebook and Twitter, then the prospects for such an organization seem fairly dim, given that we don't trust those third parties. But they are for-profit organizations, so maybe that's part of the problem here. You do mention another international organization that might provide more kind of hope when it comes to the international management of pseudonyms, ICANN. I mean, do you have anything more to kind of say about that idea? Do you think that's that's a potential working model for an organization like Pseudo? Potentially. Again, it's not perfect, but it shows that it is possible to have a non-profit organization that can coordinate uh, people in very different countries and represent very different countries. And I think one of the most important things to think about is how we could build a system of appeals and accountability. So maybe, for example, in Europe, the European Court of Justice could play an important role in holding that organization accountable. Like you say, it, my argument is more like an invitation for further discussion rather than something that aims at having the last word on this topic. Yeah, I mean, something that you've mentioned a couple of times around the idea of management of academic journals raises this example that's come up in the past few months of the Journal of Controversial Ideas. I think that's the name of it, which is a proposed academic journal that's, I think, launching later this year. And a former guest on this podcast, uh, Francesca Minerva, is one of the founding editors of this journal. Uh, Maybe you could talk a bit about that proposed academic journal. Do you think that provides a model for the kind of system you're imagining when it comes to the management of uh, pseudonyms, at least in a particular context, namely academic speech? I think it's an incredibly good idea, and I'm very excited to see what happens with it. I think it should be thought of as a test, and it might be good for us to gain practice and see what goes wrong and what goes right. Um, The the journal was founded by Francesca Minerva, Peter Singer, and Jeff McMahon, and all of these three academics have faced pretty high costs for their speech. I think if you work in ethics and in political philosophy, there is no department that hasn't faced this problem. And almost every philosopher I know is in some way or another self-censoring because of online trends. So I'm very concerned about academia and I think we are missing out on important ideas. Something that makes me a bit uncomfortable about the Journal of Controversial Ideas is that it's focused on controversial ideas. It seems to me that it invites ideas that might be more radical than they would be if they were submitted to another journal. So that would be for every journal in academia to offer the possibility of pseudonymity rather than have one journal that focuses on controversial ideas. I think that is slightly problematic. It's not the fault of the founders, of course, um, and it's better than having nothing at all. But I just worry if it's going to attract um, too controversial ideas in a way. And also, it's it's very unpredictable to know what's going to be controversial in some cases. I don't know if you've had this experience, but sometimes you tweet something that you think is the most sensible thing in the world or kind of obvious, and it turns out to start a huge controversy that you you had never expected. Um, I mean, so lots of things I've written have ended up being more controversial than I anticipated, but it sounds like you might have had some experience in this. Have you had experience in that? Yeah, some of the least controversial things, at least from my perspective that I've said, have had some of the biggest controversies. 
And so that just makes me wonder what kind of articles they might receive and what kind of articles they might publish. But I think it's, it's something to look out for and pay attention to and further discuss whether it's promising and whether we could maybe implement it in other, for other journals that are not focused only on controversial ideas. Yeah, I agree uh, that it should be viewed as an experiment. And I think, in fairness, that's how the founding editors have pitched it, at least in some of the interviews that I've seen. But I also agree with you that there is a maybe a problem of branding here by naming the journal the Journal of Controversial Ideas that invites a certain type of submission and also a certain kind of reaction to it. You know, you're kind of almost baiting people to disagree with it or find something wrong with it. And it did strike me that the reaction to it when it was uh, launched was largely negative, at least in my particular self-selecting community of the online world, which I thought was not a um, a warranted reaction, but I think uh, you know, all the arguments that people made were basically the arguments that we made earlier in this podcast about the, the problems of accountability and standing over your ideas and not, not providing a mouthpiece for bigotry and extremism. And the, I think that was the concern around a journal like this, is that it might provide a front for that kind of activity. But I think if it's managed effectively... It could avoid that problem. Yes, and one of the challenges that the editors face is making sure that the identities of author are really safe. And it's not easy to do that in the online world. Data is hard to keep safe. And if there's a hacker who really wants to have access to that data, they'll likely get it. So we'll see how things develop. Yeah, no, that's very true. And I mean, you've written about this as well in other contexts about the importance of uh, data fiduciaries on, in the online world. Yes, and maybe for for people who are not, you know, a big tech company, uh, it might be safer to keep things offline in paper than to try to solve that problem online at the moment. Yes, although difficult to compete then or with the yeah. digital world. Yeah, but no, I, I, I agree that I, ironically... A lot of paper-based communications or formats are more secure now than online formats. At least that strikes me to be the case for in many contexts. Yes, low-tech seems to be the new high-tech in privacy. <laughs> Maybe just a couple of you know final questions. Um, how can we address the problem of deception with pseudonymous speech? I mean, how can we prevent or enable truthful speech? Yes. If pseudonyms are names that refer to fictional characters, there are a lot of questions about deception. And the first one maybe is the deception involved in pretending to be someone else. A second one is about the content of what people say. So regarding the first kind of deception, I think that is easier to... Regarding the first kind of deception, it is easier to deal with that by just tagging pseudonyms as such. Netizens could always know whether they are engaging with a real identity or an alter ego. Much like a mask, wearing a mask is not a deceptive act. It hides one identity, but does it forthrightly. The second kind of worry is more difficult to address. People who don't have their identities to risk might be tempted to say, things that are false more than they would otherwise. One way to to fix this is to have, again, privileged parties that verify certain facts about 
the author. So as I said before, an example is that they could verify whether that person has formal training in the discipline that they are writing about. And in other kind of forums, we could allow flexibility in that people could want part of their identities revealed and verified, but other parts not. So for example, if a woman wanted to have her gender verified and have it as part of her on online alter ego, would that would might give her more authority when giving an opinion about what it's like to be a woman. But essentially, we cannot completely rule out that people will use pseudonymity to lie online. One of the advantages, maybe, is that the readers might be more alert to this possibility than if they are dealing with identity. So when somebody says something and you can see who they are and you think that their reputation is on the line, I think you're more prone to think that that is true because it's hard to believe that if it were false, that person could keep their reputation and their jobs, although in fact they can. <laughs> I think the mere fact of dealing with a mask and being reminded that you're dealing with a mask sort of prompts more skepticism in people than, than they would, would otherwise have. So that's the optimistic side. Yeah, I, I mean, I would like to be optimistic about that, but I think I am more pessimistic in reality because I, I don't, I don't see, yeah, like I, I don't, I don't see those kinds of incentives at play at the moment when we in the system that we have, which is, I guess, a mix of anonymity and identifiability. So I think I would worry about that going forward. The other thing that you argue towards the end of your paper, which I actually found quite interesting and maybe also a bit counterintuitive for some people, which is how pseudonymity can help to address the issue of, let's say, unpopular or more controversially, un-PC speech. So one of the points you make is that pseudonymity might actually make non-politically correct speech less costly than it currently is without completely eliminating its costs, and that that could be a kind of a net benefit for those who worry about the way in which politically or political correctness is silencing people online. Maybe you could talk about that, that argument that you make. So here I was thinking about arguments that today are considered politically incorrect, but that in the future we might consider politically correct. So if we look to the past, you could imagine how in say medieval ages and and actually much later it would have been very politically incorrect to say that women are just as smart as men and they deserve votes and they deserve the same kind of respect that would have gotten speakers into trouble and yet we don't want to completely rule out that kind of speech because we want society to advance and for society to advance we have to allow some kind of leeway in social norms some kind of of discrepancies that we can then discuss and think about further and so on. So according to my proposal, this kind of unpopular speech would be possible. It would have a price to pay. At a minimum, the speaker of such a view would be the bearer of a stable online persona through which he would be forced to face criticism by his peers. And such criticism is often quite unpleasant to receive. So his online life on the platform that he's using may be negatively affected by the expression of his views. Maybe other netizens will not engage with him in positive interactions 
that would have otherwise taken place. Um, and it is likely that netizens will um, will suffer from it. But the impact of the backlash will be significantly contained and diminished by his pseudonym. If he has access to other pseudonyms, he can occupy those other persona whenever he gets tired of answering objections to his argument. And more importantly, his offline life is safe. His work and family environment can remain untouched by the online controversy. So expressing unpopular views can still be a costly affair, but not so costly that you have to risk your job and your life and your family to voice something that is contentious. And here I'm just assuming that we'll figure out how to do it such that, you know, every argument is allowed, but only in very respectful ways. And it's not an insult, it's not a death threat, it's not violence, it's not hate speech. It's an argument that is unpopular. Yeah, I mean, I find that idea compelling to some extent because it, it again, manages to kind of navigate between the two polar extremes of high cost and low cost, maybe quite effectively in that there are some costs in a certain context for expressing these unpopular views, namely the online speech environment and who you interact with in that environment, but those costs don't spill over into all aspects of your lives, which is, I think, the concern that people really have at the moment about, you know, online shaming and how the calls for people to lose their jobs and to be shunned in their personal lives or their offline lives as being a particular issue. So if we could somehow prevent those spillover costs, I think that would be a net gain, really. That's exactly the thought. And I think it's become really hard in the digital age to separate different facets of life. So in the past, you used to have your job, you used to have your family life, you used to have your friends, and those didn't necessarily mix. So if one went terribly wrong, you still had the others for support. And today, everything meshes together. So somebody who makes a comment uh, to a friend and is politically incorrect and gets published suddenly doesn't have a job anymore. And maybe his job wasn't in any way related to the comment. And I find that problematic. Yeah, no, I know. I agree. So some way of preventing that, that would be advantageous. Uh, let me just ask one last question. And I freely admit that this question is the kind of question that I would hate to personally be asked. So if you want to throw it back in my face, that's fine. But um, <laughs> how optimistic or pessimistic are you about the future of online speech? I am more optimistic than pessimistic. I think this is only the beginning of the digital age, and we are already starting to see a kind of civilizing process of the internet in the form, on the one hand, of regulation, like the GDPR, and on the other hand, better tech design. We have now much more data and much more experience to know what can go wrong, and that might give us ideas of how to design it differently so that it goes better. But I'm not completely optimistic. I know it's going to be a long process and it's very risky. If we do not manage to rein in some of the internet's biggest problems quickly enough, we are going to cause much unnecessary suffering. Now is the time to invest in the ethics and politics of tech. And if we invested in, in that, in the ethics and politics of tech, half of what we invest in developing tech, it would be more likely to move towards a better future. And I would be able to feel much more optimistic. Well, I hope you're right. So uh, thank you for joining me for this conversation. Thank you for having me.